everyone, welcome to the Geek Therapy Podcast. My name is Josue Cardona. I'm really excited to have with us today Mike Langlois, a licensed independent clinical social worker in Massachusetts. He has 15 years of counseling experience, and one of the things that he specializes in is gamer affirmative therapy. He's also the author of Reset, Video Games and Psychotherapy, and you can read more about him on his blog at gamertherapist.com. Um, welcome, Mike. Well, thank you for having me, Jose. In a recent episode, I talked about being geek culture competent, and it was a fascinating conversation because we talked about how a lot of clinicians don't know, you know, don't really know what geek culture is or aren't as accepting, and we talked about it from both perspectives of uh, being a clinician and, and liking things about geek culture and not being able to use it in practice or just because supervision isn't accepting of it. And then having clients, you know, understand what it's like, what's the difference between having someone roll their eyes at you because you talk about something that you like and having someone that's accepting. So what you're doing is even is very specific to gaming culture. So I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about what, what you mean by being a gamer affirmative therapist. Sure. Um, when I say gamer affirmative therapist, I really am talking about cultural competency. Uh, I think in the way you were uh, alluding to with culture, being geek culturally competent, and that is to see that um, there are uh, our cultural aspects to people that play video games, especially people that play a lot of video games. And um, I coined the term gamer affirmative therapist as sort of a riff on um, the concept of gay affirmative therapists or LGBT affirmative therapists. And part of the reason I did that was because I, I see some historical parallels um, in the late 70s and 80s, uh, homosexuality was still considered a pathology in, in the DSM-3, and I believe uh, even today we have one that's called egodystonic homosexuality. I, I think that's still in there. But um, the upshot of this was that uh, the, the information out there for therapists uh, was pretty pathologizing of LGBT folks. And um, as happened, uh, what happened was a lot of LGBT folks started becoming clinicians and started helping uh, ask some pretty important questions about how we treat LGBT patients. And um, once those folks started publishing and once those folks started widening the body of knowledge and um, helping destigmatize the field, we started to see uh, more people that were called LGBT affirmative therapists. And that was a way of uh, alerting the patient that these folks weren't going to try aversion therapy. These folks didn't have a automatic sense of pathology. And in some ways that these folks were culturally competent to treat LGBT folks that may not want to actually have their sexual orientation be the focus of treatment that might have had other things they wanted to talk about more. So um, nowadays we don't necessarily hear quite as much, at least in Massachusetts, in terms of gay affirmative therapists because it's become a lot more commonplace. Most graduate schools have us trained to be competent clinicians in uh, working with LGBT folks, uh, at least having a basic knowledge. And so in terms of geek culture and, and, and gaming, I am using the same sort of parallel that I think we're at a similar stage where there are 
um, few people that are very technologically savvy and playing video games that happen to be clinicians um, or educators among clinicians. And so the majority of stuff you hear out there is that video gaming is an addiction, that it's um, causing seizures everywhere, that people are, you know, getting killed or dying in cafes, playing games, and, and really the media hype of, of negativity. And uh, that's not a substitute for clinical knowledge. And so by saying I'm a gamer affirmative therapist, I'm trying to communicate that I have a very different stance. You know, um, I learned that a good way to display that you're an LGBT affirmative therapist was to have something really simple like a rainbow sticker or something like that on your office or your wall. Do you have anything like that that you use to show off that and let just let gamers know, hey, this is a safe place for you. I know what you like. I know what you're into. You can talk about that here. Well, you know, that's a really good question. And um, I actually have made some headway in that recently. Um, you know, it's funny. I've been doing gaming uh, affirmative therapy in this approach for, you know, a while now. But it wasn't until this past few months that it was pointed out to me by a couple of patients that I didn't have a video game console in my room, in my office. <laughs> and, um, you know, as someone that works with both adolescents and adults and some, and some children, you know, my, my view of play therapy was kind of needing to be shaken up. That, uh, you know, when 94% of girls and 97% of boys are playing video games, then that is a form of play therapy. So this was the week that um, the Xbox moved in and we now have an Xbox in my office, um, which was, you know, a lot of fun to, to start doing some play therapy uh, with folks using that. In terms of other more subtle cues, uh, there is a little cast plastic version of Deathwing that's on the bookcase. You probably see a couple of Super Mario Brother mushrooms here and there. Um, so it, there's not a lot of things because I, I do uh, have, you know, I do have a lot of uh, patients. Not all of them are are playing video games. But um, the, the people that want to want to see stuff, they can they can notice a few things. But I think, as I said, the biggest thing is the addition of the Xbox. And um, I'm surprised as I'm thinking about this, how long it took me to because this is my 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 thing and how long it took me to get with the program and actually bring video gaming into play therapy. <laughs> that's that's funny. So how do you use, for example, now that you have the Xbox in there, what are some of the ways that you use it in therapy? Well, by playing, and you know what's interesting is there's a second hurdle that I think clinicians um, need to deal with in terms of play therapy. And I guess I want to preface this by saying not all play therapy sessions need to adhere to the same formula. Um, but I was trained with pretty classic play therapy in terms of Melanie Klein and Virginia Axline, and the emphasis being on play and very non-directed. And um, what I've seen in the past, uh, you know, it's interesting, now I have to say 20 years of doing clinical work, I have to update my bio, was way. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, in the past 20 years, I've seen a real shift in how play therapy is done, um, at least in how people talk about it. And what started to happen is this standard sort of brokering a deal, um, we'll, play, we'll play for half the session if you talk about stuff for half the session. 
Um, and I fall into that too sometimes. And what's interesting about that is it sort of implies that play is the reward rather than the treatment modality and really kind of places primacy on talking. And so I noticed myself doing this again recently um, with adolescents that would come in and I'd say, well, let's, let's do a little talk and then um, you can tell me uh, how things are going and then we'll, we'll actually play. And something kind of clicked for me when I, I caught myself doing this and I thought, you know, first off, kids are really good at multitasking and kids can talk about things while they're playing the game. But the second is, I think that I was not using it as a modality, but rather as a reward. And that um, I need to, I needed to be reminded that play is therapeutic and that to take it seriously. And um, so I can't go into necessarily the details of particular sessions, but what I would say is um, that I stopped talking so much at the beginning and we entered the game world much more quickly, which meant we were able to establish relationships between the two of us because we were playing actually um, an MMO. Um, and so we were able to get into some adventures and I was able to see how the kiddo problem solves. I was able to see a nurturing side of this kiddo that I hadn't necessarily seen um, in terms of wanting to protect me from being attacked or killed. Um, and so I think that the way this reminded me, I guess my main point here is to, to really take play therapy seriously, we need to actually play and I'll say it, we need to actually allow ourselves to enjoy or get excited or get immersed in the play. And that I think that's something that therapists have a hard time with because I think therapists have this weird complex about needing to take themselves very seriously, um, you know, and, and and I take play very seriously, but even as someone that does, I notice I sometimes have to remind myself to, you know, shut up and pick up the controller. Yeah, I've had experiences where I was expected to do play therapy using games that no one has at their home and only therapists buy from from uh, play therapy shops and things like that. And and they weren't a lot of fun for me. So once I started using video games and therapy, it was absolutely a completely different experience yeah. because the client's had fun, you had fun, and and yeah, absolutely. It makes a big difference if you're immersed in it as well. Oh, you know, I've played the talking, feeling, doing game more times than I can remember. And, <laughs> you know, what I think is interesting about it is, you know, I don't know that anybody's fooled. It's not a game. It's really a sort of, you know, gussied up version of doing therapy in a lot of ways. Yeah. And what I also think is interesting is that, you know, therapists need to be able to, I think, get with the program in that in terms of board games and uh, behavior modification charts, for example, in, in particular, we're still using for behavior charts stickies and gold stars and things like that when, you know, there are things like Chore Wars and um, Epic Win and all sorts of video game alternatives, which are much more engaging, much more dynamic, much more colorful and shiny. And video games in many ways are much more dynamic and compelling than a lot of traditional board games. And so now I'm not saying that we throw out Parcheesi or anything like that, because I think really good games, you know, stand the test of time. But I think that a lot of times you know, we make we make therapy so behavioral and boring 
that um, we're surprised when someone doesn't want to do, you know, engage in doing the work of therapy. Yeah, and with children, um, you mentioned using it for really building rapport, you know, building that relationship at the beginning, um, behavior modification as a reward. And I think that also with older um, people, not only kids, there's, you can use gaming in different ways because the idea of gaming as a culture is not only children playing um, as a pastime, if not adults use it for relaxing. And, you know, it's a billion-dollar industry, and millions of people come home every day and play. They wind down. But it's also a way of, I mean, I think the narratives in the games are also very important. Games today have huge stories. Um, you mentioned MMOs before, which are uh, massively multiplayer online games, where just these huge fantasies are playing out with tons of people. So can you talk a little bit about what it means for, you know, using gamer affirmative therapy with um, older clients? Sure. Um, and in fact, I can do, give you two examples. Um, and the first example I want to give you is actually someone that doesn't play a lot of video games. Um, that is an adult patient that um, actually disliked uh, playing video games for the most part. And one of the things that was interesting was though, although they did not like video games. They were very familiar with video games because they're part of our culture. They're they're now part of you know our telephones and our iPads. So um, what was interesting was when we talked about when we were talking in an appointment about their tendency to always be comparing themselves to others. I was able to say you know it's interesting even though you don't necessarily like playing video games. It sounds like you've got this ongoing leaderboard in your mind. That um, and for people that may not know what a leaderboard is, it's the thing of list of high scores where people are one, two, three, four, who has the most points. And this particular patient got it immediately and found it as a really helpful example of how, you know, is that really what I want? Do I really want to go through life with this constant leaderboard? And what happens to me if I do? So that's an example of how you can actually use some video game mechanics and imagery that if for someone that doesn't even play video games and they'll, they'll often find it meaningful. Um, with folks that are adults that play video games, it's, it's even more rich. Um, with folks that have a history of trauma, um, we can talk about the defenses and ego defenses and also desensitization that come up with you know them acquiring gear. Um, the metaphor of acquiring gear is sort of you know with experience they built up you know a, a sense of defense against people and um, with uh, some folks that have had trauma as children we can sort of talk about how they were tanking um, this giant monster, that it was somebody much bigger and more powerful than themselves, and really all they could do in the moment was perhaps distract the person from abusing a sibling by tanking. Um, and t talking about, um, I had one, one encounter with t using this metaphor with someone, and the, the, the patient exclaimed, and I was undergeared, and I thought that was such a powerful an understandable use of that metaphor that yes as children when we're trying to protect our siblings or ourselves we do tank and we are undergeared and how does that impact our later life and how we understand relationships so 
Um, that's an example of how you can use it with an individual in terms of trauma. You, you can also talk with couples about it, about how to how um, couples may how individuals in a couple may draw aggro from the other person, what things they say or do that pulls pulls for the the boss and the other person to become more aggressive. Um, folks that play World of Warcraft, uh, for example, will understand a lot of these concepts. Um, but there's there's just so many different um, metaphors that come up, and I can't really, you know, I can't really begin to tell you the the, the richness of it, depending on what the games uh, are. Um, and the other thing I guess I'd say is that they're diagnostic. That everybody uh, plays different games, and what people like to play says a lot about them, and what particular characters a person likes to play says a lot about them. Um, for example, it takes a lot of time and dedication to level a paladin in World of Warcraft. It's a lot harder to do and takes a lot more time than somebody that is leveling a mage in general. And so if someone tends to be gravitating towards paladins, one of the things that I would wonder about is, are, is that saying something about their ability to, to delay gratification? Is that saying something about their ability to persist and be patient in the face of obstacles? So I th the great thing about um, what you were just talking about and, and, and again, just being gamer affirmative is the language. You just said a lot of things that probably some clinicians who've never played a video game don't understand, but really we're talking about resilience and we're talking about building up um, defenses and um, achieving things, um, reaching goals in life, um, going through struggles. And we're just using the language that perhaps gamer, gamers are just much more familiar with because it's, it's, it's what they do, it's what they live, it's, it's what they enjoy. So it's a lot easier to talk about it in that context. Well, and you know what, what makes me kind of a, a, little, a little frustrated or sad it, it was with our colleagues is that um, I don't think this language is, is, is so unavailable. In fact, in terms of psychodynamic theory, we've been talking about aggression and defenses and pulls, all of these things we've been talking about for years. And that I, I really think that um, with a little bit of experience in the game, anybody that's been trained to view dreams as meaningful and having fantasy material or has been trained to think about people and situations metaphorically should have a lot of um, exciting things that they can kind of connect to. Um, so, and what, what, why I'm saying that is because I've noticed in the fields of game, game theory and, and games for health, a lot of the stuff that is being um, done is, is good, but it's also very behavioral in focus. And I really wish some psychodynamic uh, clinicians would, would, would start kind of you know, following my lead and claiming some of that, taking back um, some of the, how games for health can be therapeutic from a psychodynamic point of view as well as behavioral. Um, because I, I think that behavioral interventions are great, but I also think that insight-oriented therapy and therapy that deals with underlying drives and forces can really benefit a lot from understanding what a game is. Yeah, it's an exciting time for us as clinicians because as all this research is coming out now about using video games and therapy, 
it really is just going back to the classics and to a lot of behavioral, you know, um, things that we accept already that we as as clinicians. And they're just changing the conversation and saying, look, this is what we've been talking about for years is exactly what's going on in this game. And this is exa- it's helping clients in exactly the same way. Right. I mean, for example, in terms of ego defenses, every every psychodynamic therapist has been trained in what displacement means. Um, so that when somebody is describing how they like to be a hunter and how they cast misdirect on a boss, that should be something that we can kind of translate because that is a form of displacement. And yeah. therapists that are psychodynamic, I would imagine, would start to ask or wonder themselves, huh, did this person pick this character because that's a primary ego style that they feel comfortable with? Is that a major defense of theirs? Or is that a defense they're trying to grow into? So I don't. Th- I think you're right. I think the questions are and the way of thinking about this is similar. And I think where I also find some hope is not only that there is a lot of research that's coming out, and I think that is very positive, but I also think there's an emerging sense of accepting video games as an art form. And I think that therapists have long understood that art is a revelation of a sense of what it means to be human. And that looking at art or looking at a dream state of a patient is meaningful. So I'm hoping that as video games get more accepted as a viable art form, that therapists will start to think of it in the same way they think of literature and movies and poetry. So for any clinician who who's interested in learning more about video games and, and really doesn't know, and the chances are extremely high that someone that comes into their office um, knows about video games or plays video games, because again, it's a huge industry. Everyone has games on their phone. Either their kids play, their spouses play. So what, what advice do you have for, for clinicians who really don't know about video games but want to learn more? Okay, well, let's see. First off, buy my book. It's $2.99. It's on Amazon. And that's a lot of uh, information that you can get free uh, or nearly free. Um, but I, I think even though I'd like people to buy the book, the thing I would actually suggest they do more is actually get out there and start playing some games. Most of the video games, World of Warcraft, I just started playing with Age of Conan um, the, this uh, two or three days ago, are free to download and free to play either a part of the whole game or the first 10 or 30 levels of it. So it's possible for people to actually invest zero money and, and just some hours of their time to try to play these games. And one of the things that folks will usually experience um, when they start playing these games is a lot of frustration and confusion and feeling clumsy and awkward. And I usually counsel folks that come to me for supervision around this that that's really part of the point and to really push through it. Because if you're feeling overwhelmed or confused and not knowing what to do in this new world, that's how your patient feels. That's how they felt and that's what made them come to you. 
if they're a kid, that's what their experience of learning is in the classroom, feeling like they don't know how to do it. If it's an adult that hasn't been able to have a successful relationship or an adult that's had trauma or, or um, some other situation make the world seem overwhelming and frightening and confusing to them, this is, this is how they experience things. And so it's, an, it's a, a microcosm of that. And I think if we, if people actually push through that in the video games, they start to experience some of the sense of, of winning and learning uh, that, um, and, and a sense of growing expertise. Um, you know, one of the things that has happened, the more I've been working on video games and technology and therapy, is the more I've been unable to avoid really looking at how problematic some of the ways we educate people are in the world and that um, the way the education system is set up we really emphasize focusing on an area you like and that you feel strong in and then siloing down in it for the rest of your life so that after high school and college you major in something and then maybe if you go to if you're a therapist you go to grad school and you get to that area that feels safe and competent as soon as you can and then you kind of stay there and so it really alienates us from the experience of a lot of the patients we see, kids especially, because they're not siloed down. They're being forced to, you know, learn the slope of a curve, even if they want to be um, a writer or learning how to, you know, draw turkeys with their hand rather than, you know, something else that maybe Thanksgiving is about that's, you know, maybe deconstructing it a little bit, for example. So education, you know, don't get me started on education, I guess I'm saying. <laughs> because it, it, and yeah. so I think this comes up a lot when people start to play a game. Is that one of, it's, it's for the first time they have again ventured into unfamiliar territory and, and they don't like not being competent. Yeah, absolutely. If you're interested there's so many demos for free on either your cell phone, um, the app store. If you have any consoles at home, you can download demos for free and just try it out. Absolutely. I think that's that's great advice. Well, and you know, also, I think that another piece of being a therapist is helping people either as adults be able to delay gratification or think about their choices or as parents to help their children be digitally literate. And so even the process of downloading an app, like you just said, or helping a patient see how, how easy it is uh, for uh, their child to log in and buy some like stuff for Farmville, I think that's important. I think that we are, whether we like it or not, often the people that need to help do parent guidance and parent education or help adults be able to sort through and work on delaying gratification. And the more we know about the, the, the arenas that people are struggling in, the better. And I, I did want to say one thing that um, I, I was thinking about in terms of working, uh, what you said at the beginning, and you talked about how there are a lot of supervisors who um, are inadvertently or deliberately discouraging because of their own technophobia and dismissal um, of clinicians that may want to talk about this. And I think that um, that is a real shame and really problematic. And I think that it's not at all necessary and it doesn't have to 
It doesn't have to be that way. I personally have a supervisor who is, you know, older than me and is not necessarily extremely technologically savvy and or playing video games, but I have never felt like I couldn't bring that material in to supervision. So I don't think it necessarily needs to be that the person is tech savvy. I think good supervision is being able to, you know, take whatever the, the person's bringing in and, and really be able to work with it. So, um, you know, I, I do think that if people are not having that experience with their supervisor and they're buying private supervision, then they should, you know, take their business elsewhere if they've talked about it and it's not changing. So, so for any clinicians listening who are already gamers or already love um, you know, a lot of us, especially coming out of school now, we grew up on video games, and and now we have expendable income, and now this is um, one of our pastimes. So, what is your advice for them when, if they want to go ahead and become, you know, advocate for being gamer affirmative and really have that become part of their practice? Well, let's see. Um, I I think to a degree, I I would say don't be afraid to enjoy yourself in therapy, um, with your patients, and I don't think that's just um, new clinicians that are gamers. I think that up-and-coming generations of therapists have really been trained in this sort of dire medical evidence-based model that really sets this assumption that you really shouldn't be enjoying yourself, that you know it's sort of puritanism is alive and well. You're supposed to be working hard but not enjoying yourself. And so um, specifically to gamers it's it's okay to enjoy talking about or, or even playing games with your patients if that is something that's part of your treatment. Um, I think having said that, patient, uh, therapists that are gaming therapists have a different sort of countertransference that they have to uh, deal with with patients. And whereas people that are more technophobic have to sort of learn how to not be dismissive and how to really kind of cultivate an interest in video games. People that play have different things that come up. They need to watch, um, you know, when they disclose and why they disclose certain things, for example. Like, you know, if a patient comes in and they're all proud of themselves for having fished up the sea turtle in World of Warcraft, um, what does it mean that you suddenly feel an, a, an impulse to say, yeah, I did that too last week? Um, do you find that you're being more competitive with your patients who game? Um, do you find that you want to linger on that topic longer than maybe they want to? So I, I think that people that play games, um, video games, have to be mindful in a different way. Um, and, and that is sort of the areas of, of competition or over-identification with some of the things a patient's doing. And, of course, have an Xbox in your room so your clients know that you like video games. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, and, and so, and to be prepared for, you know, people wanting to use it. And, and be able to say, yes, I think that's a great idea. And sometimes to say no. That, uh, you know, it, video games are used as distraction or unwinding. And if a patient is coming in and really wants to avoid doing some of the uncomfortable work of therapy, then it's also okay to say, you know, I, I don't know or see how playing Xbox would be helpful for you right at this point. So I think that um, 
video games are are useful and meaningful and powerful tools and i think they're also not necessarily something that everyone should be be using and i think that people that are technophobic they're going to struggle with being more comfortable letting people play games in the office and i think people that are gamers are going to feel are going to be struggling more with setting some limits around it that sometimes you know you know, someone's coming in and playing a video game is the last thing they need to do. So we talked a lot about being gamer affirmative therapist, and there's so much about gaming that we could talk about and go into specifics because there's so many different types of games, so many different ways to use it. I know you've written a lot about this on your blog. So um, what's the best way that people can find out more about this information from you or contact you directly? Well, the best place to go is is actually the blog because everything on that blog is free and available and open to anyone they want, and people are welcome to cite it. You know, just I just ask people cite it if they use it in some of their work. Um, and the website is gamertherapist.com, um, and that's probably one of the best ways to to read about it. Um, and I, I really encourage people to, to go uh, read and comment on the blog. I actually find when a lot of gamers uh, weigh in, they help me see things that I hadn't necessarily seen. And, um, you know, there was a long time, for example, that I was avoiding talking about or thinking about first-person shooters. And it, it's actually an interesting parallel, in, in my view, to how the LGBT community has historically struggled with this, that um, the minute uh, mainstream uh, uh, and and mainstream acting LGBT folks began getting some um, acceptance, that there was a struggle with um, trying to make sure that everyone was still being included. Um, and so that folks that were of trans experience or folks that were um, in, it's not considered what mainstream America felt they could tolerate with LGBT folks, there was often this sense of leaving that behind um, and um, not having a solidarity. And I noticed that the same thing sometimes happens with video games and first-person shooters, and that will really focus on how you know social games help with social skills, and will focus on the collaborative aspects of video games. But people sort of don't want to talk as much about first-person shooters because that, that that's the violent stuff and that's the part that usually people feel the most uh, conflicted about and so when i caught myself doing that i noticed it and it you know made me do more research uh, on first person shooters and do more research uh, on how to destigmatize that so i i think that there's a lot of that came from listening to gamers talking and, you know, listening to gamers talking about entire parts of video games that I had not played at all. So um, those comments on the blog and those comments in different places are really, I, I think, very valuable. Um, and, and having said that, I would say there's no replacement for actually playing some video games. Um, whether it's Angry Birds or whether you download um, World of Warcraft to try some levels, the immediate experience is definitely one of the best ways of, of doing this. 
Yeah. And it's research, right? If you don't know about it, it's research. If you know about games, if there's something you don't know about, just consider it research and it'll help you if that's what you really um, want to bring to therapy. That's a very good point. That's, that's you know, becoming culturally competent. Yeah. Um, and it's funny that you say research because that actually gets me in trouble at home with family members <laughs> because I call it research and um, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, looked at skeptically because I'm enjoying myself. And, you know, that I think is something we really need to, to question. Researching something can be fun. Absolutely. So yeah. if you're someone that's a gamer and you want to do more research, that's totally cool too. Yeah. And I mean, any clients, any clinicians who've never used video games necessarily, I'm sure whenever a client brings up a movie or a book or a website, um, you know, it, it it, you get curious and you want to check it out so then you you know where the client is coming from it's no different exactly and you know that's a really good point because a lot of the video games that I've tried in the past few months have actually been games that patients have brought up that they're playing that I don't know and so you know three or four months ago I was playing Team Fortress for the first time in my life and you know finding it really interesting and enjoyable but the motivation for that particular game was I want to understand this patient better. And I can't tell you how validating that is experienced by the patient as when they know that you're taking the time out to try a specific game because you want to understand them better. That's the epitome of being gamer affirmative. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> so, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about this. Like I said, there's a lot more information on gaming and gaming and therapy. Um, visit Mike's blog at GamerTherapist.com. Is there any other way people can reach you, or is all the information there? Um, my contact information is all there. If they don't want to go there, they can reach me at Mike at MikeLanglois.com. Um, people can also follow me on Twitter at MikeLICSW, and that's MikeLICSW. And, of course, you can like me on Facebook, and there's all sorts of other places. And feel free to circle me in Google, at Google+. And, um, you know, I do offer supervision around this sort of stuff, and I'm probably going to be having a supervision group um, coming up in the fall that will, people can take part in. Um, but uh, any way they want to get in touch with me, they're, they're welcome to do that. And I do recommend checking out the blog. It does have a lot of information on using gaming, but it also has great information for therapists who are starting out. Um, and I found that a lot of it very useful. Oh, well, that's good to hear. So thank you, Mike. Um, if you want to know more about Geek Therapy, visit um, www.geektherapy.info for our curated news site or geektherapypodcast.com for other episodes of the podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter at Geek Therapy.